ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turable land. It's something we spend around a third of our lives doing. It's so ubiquitous in nature that even tiny worms do it. And yet, for many of us, it's so hard to come by that there's a multi-million dollar industry that's been built up around it. Of course, I'm talking about sleep. I sleep twice a day. I've been doing it 25 years. It definitely affects how I live. Having those sort of sleep hours are difficult. Do you use anything to help you sleep? No, I can fall asleep very quickly. I lie down and I'm asleep. (laughs) It's a skill you've honed over the years, I guess. I sleep at traffic lights. (laughs) (laughs) That's terrifying. My husband's pretty bad. He often wakes up three to four times a night, gets very cranky in the morning because he hasn't had a good sleep, whinges a lot about that. (laughs) He uses sleep tablets, that'll help him. He doesn't like using it every night because he doesn't want to get addicted to it or not make it work. So he may use it two to three times a week. We don't sleep in the same room. We're very smart. As soon as I snuggle into bed and put my head on the pillow, I'm asleep within 30 seconds. (laughs) But humans aren't the only animals that sleep. Maybe we're the only ones that worry about it so much. It's hard to say because I tried to ask my dog her thoughts and she just started wagging her tail. But by looking at animal models, we can understand not just their sleep, but sleep as a biological process. My colleague Anne Jones has been looking into this for her show, What the Duck. Sleep is doing all sorts of things for animals. Associate Professor John Lescu is head of the Sleep Ecophysiology Group at La Trobe University. Most basically, it seems to be involved with energy conservation, that when you're sleeping, you save energy, and you save energy by not doing something more energetically demanding, and you save energy by lowering your metabolic rate. But then in addition to that, sleep is also doing lots of things for the brain. So sleep is clearing waste that is generated by the action of neurons while they're active and firing. Sleep is involved with the consolidation of new memories. It's doing all sorts of things. On the surface, when you look at a sleeping animal, you think that it could almost be maladaptive because you're so vulnerable when you're asleep. The very evolutionary and ecological persistence of sleep indicates that it must be doing something important. This is a voluntary period of unresponsiveness, best characterized by sort of heightened vulnerability to threats. And yet we do it for one third of our lives. And some animals do it for the majority of their lives, such that being awake is actually the least common state. So it must be doing something important, right? But we need to get a bit of a definition going on here. What is sleep? Yeah, perfect. So that's a, a simple but not so simple question. Dr. Shawnee Omond is a sleep ecophysiology researcher. So when you're looking at behaviour in usually animals, you look at five key characteristics. Their species-specific posture and location. So every time they're asleep, they have a particular physical position and maybe a place also like a dugong floating softly just above the bottom of a body of water, or me in the fetal position, somewhere dark and quiet. From there, 
you look at arousal threshold. So if you're awake and you're sitting there talking to me and I poke you on the shoulder, you feel that and you look at me and you're like, why'd you poke me? Now, if you're asleep and I sneak up to you and I poke you, you might not feel that because your arousal threshold has increased. So it takes a larger stimulus to create that arousal. So instead of me poking you when you're asleep, maybe I I punch you and you definitely wake up to that because it was larger and now you're mad, so you're awake. Then sleep will also be circadian regulated in some way. So whether that means you're nocturnal or diurnal or whatever, there's often a daily pattern to the sleep. But the last is sort of the big one. It's called homeostatic regulation. And all this means, it's a fancy term for if you miss sleep, you will make that sleep up. Simply, you're up late one night, you sleep more the next night. Okay, so with all of this in mind, a set of criteria ready for us to tick. Does everything sleep? Uh, Yeah, so (laughs) there's caveats here too. But at present, we do not have an example of a truly sleepless animal. Uh, People have studied sleep, of course, in vertebrates and found that sleep appears to be in all vertebrate groups. Within invertebrates, which constitute 99% plus of all animal life, we've really just scratched the surface. We have sleep data for maybe 10 arthropods, you know, honeybees, fruit flies, We have data for a handful of mollusks, octopus, cuttlefish, snails. They all sleep. Associate Professor John Lescu from La Trobe University and Anne Jones for What the Duck. So, yep, sleep seems pretty universal, even down to fruit flies and snails. But for our purposes today, let's focus on humans. Yeah, obviously you've got the noise from your neighbours, you've got some lights in the room which you can't really turn off. The beds are not the best, but it's okay, I suppose. It's like maybe when you go to a campsite or something. This is Jessica. She's one of Australia's 100-odd thousand FIFO workers, people who fly in, fly out of location, meaning for a week or two at a time, they're at home in their own bed, and for the rest of the time, they're out on maybe a remote mine site working long shifts and sleeping in a completely different environment. So what kind of hours do you work when you're on site? So it's a 12-hour shift, 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. And then where are you sleeping at night? So everyone has their own little accommodation. So it's just a basic room with uh, all the facilities you need, like a shower and everything. But yeah, it's essentially just a one-person bed in a small room. Is it something that affects your sleep or do you find it okay to sleep? I wouldn't say I sleep as well as I would sleep at home. Coming back home after 16 days on of working 12 hours a day, I'm pretty tired. <laughs> so yeah, I would say I just really quickly to my own bed. <laughs> if you're not getting great sleep each night there, does that affect your ability to work? We are monitored for our level of fatigue. So if I ever feel too fatigued to do my job, I can always talk to my supervisor and we can adapt what I'm supposed to be doing during the day. For instance, yeah, as a geologist, a lot of our work is done underground, which is a pretty dangerous environment. Obviously, you've got big trucks and everything very active around you. So obviously, if you're too tired and you deem it not safe for you to go underground, you can always talk to your supervisor and not go underground and have someone else do it for you. 
because not everyone has really the same chronotype, I think. Some people, I think, would benefit from like starting later that day and maybe finishing later as well. When some people would rather start early and finish early. So I think a bit more flexibility regarding what time we start our day would probably help. Is there any specific instance that you've had where you've gone, gosh, I'm, I'm really tired today, like I've got to be careful? Yeah, I wouldn't say it happens every month, but it does happen. Or sometimes because I don't get enough sleep, I've got like, you know, a bit of a headache or something. I think I'm lucky enough that I've got a pretty good team. And if that ever happens, yeah, I can talk to people and we can work around that. What do you wish organisations understood about sleep and fatigue for FIFO workers? I think the fact that not everyone has the same needs. I feel like some people can really get away with six, seven hours of sleep, whereas others can't. Like I know for me, it's at least nine hours. Obviously, it affects a little bit your day because when you are working 12 hours a day and sleeping nine hours, it doesn't leave you much time <laughs> on the side. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, FIFO work can do a number on your sleep patterns, which can affect not just quality of life, but safety, especially when people are working with things like heavy machinery. What is surprising is how little research has been done into the effects of FIFO work on sleep. One person who's working to remedy this is Philip Berenek, a PhD candidate at Edith Cowan University. So my background originally is in sports science and I was always really passionate about recovery processes and how we can recover quicker, better. And there, sleep is pretty much number one recovery strategy. And then I very quickly realized that it's obviously not only applicable for athletes, but literally for everyone. And it's highly important to five workers because they often perform high risk tasks and therefore sleep is highly important for them as well. What do we know so far about the impact on that sort of FIFO shift work and sleep? The sleep research in five workers is very new. So there's only very limited research out there. And one study, um, what they've observed was that the FIFO workers experienced sleep difficulties, rather long time to fall asleep, but they also spent quite a long time awake between falling asleep and waking up, which then obviously also then resulted in short sleep durations. So the current recommendations for sleep duration from 18 to 64 years of age are seven to nine hours each night. And the participants in that study did not reach this recommendation whilst they were working day shifts and as well night shifts. So that study showed really that sleep difficulties are present in the FIFO working community. This is really an area that needs research. I'm now going basically one step further with my research and I'm looking at factors that impact their sleep. And there I'm specifically looking at the sleep environment. This has not been done at all in five workers. So I think, yeah, this research is very important. What do we know about the sleep environment, you know, in your initial surveys that you're doing? From research in other populations, such as general public or 
we know that there are various environmental factors that can have an impact on the sleep, temperature, but also light, air quality, noise, and bedding comfort as well. So those are basically the big five environmental factors that may be also highly influential um, factors in FIFO workers, given they are often required to sleep on site, but then also at home where they maybe need to catch up on sleep, but they can't because they have a dog or little kids um, running around in the early hours. It's early days, but what's surprised you so far with the work you're doing? The survey itself has been only a few weeks out so far, but I think it's very interesting as well, like also from having chats with five workers, that in terms of the on-site sleep environment, there can be huge differences between different sites, but also in terms of personal preferences as well. Some five workers, their sleep is very disrupted by different factors than someone else. So I think that it's also very interesting to see which factors and what specifically disturbs their sleep. What do you hope comes out of this work? Really with the survey, I'm really hoping to really capture that big picture across Australia, what's going on in terms of how the sleep environment impacts the sleep of five workers. And that is the sleep environment on site, but also at home, so that we really know what's happening. And then with the other study with the sleep tracker and environmental monitor, it's going to be really interesting to see the relationship between temperature and light specifically on the sleep patterns, but also other environmental factors, so that we then, in the end, with all those results, that we can inform individual, but also organizational strategies, because maybe there is a need to make improvements in existing sleep environments, but it may also inform companies when they are building new sites, building new camp accommodation, and maybe other the results from our studies may provide them some kind of information um, so that they can build a good sleeping environment. That was Philip Berenick, a PhD candidate at Edith Cowan University. And if you're a FIFO worker and want to contribute to Philip's research, fill out the survey at sleeproom.au. If your sleep is disrupted by the hours you have to work or young kids who keep you up at night, that kind of makes sense. But what about when the disruption is coming from an internal source? from your own brain. It's something people with chronic insomnia know all too well. And a group of people particularly at risk of disordered sleep is those with post-traumatic stress disorder. They would come and say, I just can't sleep. I'm too hypervigilant and aroused. And I know if I fall asleep, I'm going to have nightmares. And so they would have these long periods of awakening during the night. It'd be tough to fall asleep. And when they did fall asleep, even without the nightmares, they'd wake up a bunch in the middle of the night. They wouldn't feel refreshed the next day. Sean Drummond has been studying sleep disorders since he was an undergraduate. But his interest in the link between PTSD and sleep really took off when he was working with returned soldiers in the US in the early 2000s. And one of the really interesting things we noticed is that we would have veterans or their providers come to us and say, look, you know, we've had a course of treatment of traditional PTSD 
interventions. It works great for the daytime symptoms. The person isn't having a lot of the distressing daytime symptoms, but the sleep problems are still there. So can we do something about those? What is it about sleep that has this effect? It's almost like you let your guard down when you're asleep. Well, that's certainly what we're supposed to be doing, right, is letting our guard down when we're asleep. Uh, And I think part of the issue with PTSD is it's so hard to let the guard down whenever, and that can continue during sleep with people who have experienced traumatic events at night. So a lot of the veterans, uh, certainly during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, a high percentage of the missions occurred at night. And so people were used to being on edge and alert and aroused at night. And so it's just really hard to turn that off, even if in theory, you know, you're now in a safe environment in your home in the United States or in Australia. Obviously, our bodies have evolved to survive. And when something goes wrong, it's often your body's sort of trying to do something that should be useful, but it's not. What's behind PTSD and what's behind the relationship with sleep? You're right. The sort of fight or flight response is evolutionarily very adaptive, but it then becomes much less so when when you can't turn it off. And PTSD is a really interesting psychological disorder in many ways because there's a lot of root problems associated with it. So one of them is an overgeneralization of fear. That is, people start to associate lots of things in their environment with the traumatic experiences that they've had. And then these things in their environment also trigger negative feelings and distress because they're now associated with the trauma. And people have a hard time learning that, oh, wait, no, things are safe around me now. It's not the case that every car I come across might have a car bomb in it. And so this sort of constant state of threat uh, is something that they have a hard time turning off. At the same time, PTSD seems to be a disorder of memory. That is, people don't fully process the traumatic memory in the way that we would process other memories of things that happen to us in our life. And therefore, the memory doesn't get fully integrated into the larger memory system in our brain. Um, And that's actually what leads to what we call the re-experiencing symptoms. So the intrusive memories, the flashbacks, the nightmares, these seem to be created because the memory is not fully processed and normalized yet. And so... There's kind of multiple physiological abnormalities that are happening that create this suite of symptoms that we see in PTSD. You've been studying this for some 20 years now. What do we know now that does seem to be effective? There are some very clear gold standard evidence-based treatments for the daytime symptoms of PTSD. Most of these are what we call exposure-based interventions. That is, they require the the individual to talk about, think about, write about the traumatic experiences. And the goal of that actually is to counteract the abnormalities that I was talking about earlier. So being exposed to the memory of the trauma both helps to fully process and integrate that memory, as well as it actually helps to show people that the memory itself or even things that remind them of the traumatic event aren't inherently threatening. And so they don't need to be afraid of those things anymore. There's things called prolonged exposure and cognitive processing therapy are probably the two major ones that we have. But as I mentioned earlier, these daytime interventions don't actually treat the nighttime symptoms. And so In order to treat the nighttime symptoms, then we need to be using the gold standard sleep interventions. And there is something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is extremely effective in treating chronic insomnia disorder. 
And the really good news is it also works really well in the context of PTSD, even though it wasn't necessarily developed originally for that. And it also, uh, even though it's focused on the insomnia, it also has some positive benefits for the nightmares that people have in terms of reducing the frequency of the nightmares and reducing the distress that people feel from the nightmares. But this is still an active area of research for you. What do you see perhaps coming down the pike in terms of stuff that looks exciting? One of the things that we really need to do in the field is better understand how do we simultaneously treat the sleep symptoms and the daytime symptoms. And what the field really needs right now, I think, is a brief, simplified intervention that can indeed treat both the daytime and the nighttime symptoms. And so there's a number of folks around the world who are working on how can we do this in a short time frame, say, you know, 10 or 12 weeks or less. I think the other area is there's still more work to do to understand what is it about sleep that actually relates so strongly to PTSD. So when people have sleep disruptions prior to being exposed to a trauma, they're two and a half to three times more likely to develop PTSD than someone who doesn't have sleep problems when they're exposed to that trauma. And after someone's exposed to a trauma, those who develop sleep problems very quickly are also at greater risk of developing PTSD. And so we need to better understand why is it that sleep disruption is such a potent risk factor for the development of PTSD. That is fascinating. So if someone's listening to this and they go, oh my gosh, this is me, I need to seek help, what should they do? But they should uh, probably first talk to their GP and get a referral to a clinic that specializes in post-traumatic stress disorder. It does require some specialty training in order to treat it well, either the daytime or the nighttime symptoms. And so I think seeking out a mental health professional who is specifically trained in these sorts of interventions is really valuable. And certainly at Monash, we have the Turner Clinics in the School of Psychological Sciences at Monash, and we have some specialists in our clinic that are well-trained and well-experienced in treating PTSD. So that would be one place to go, but there are others around as well. Sean Drummond is Professor of Clinical Neuroscience at Monash University. Now, what underpins all this the fruit flies, the FIFO workers, the disordered sleep linked to mental health is a field of science called circadian medicine. But did you know that one of the biggest breakthroughs in circadian science, the role of the hormone melatonin on mammals, happened here in Australia? There's so much this field has given us over the past decade or so, and plenty more about sleep left to discover. One person on the vanguard is Shantha Rajaratnam also at Monash University. So circadian medicine really stems from a field in which we discovered that there is an intrinsic, that is an internally driven process that regulates the timing of our physiology, our response to the external environment. Now, the most obvious example of this 24-hour behaviour is our sleep and wake cycle. It is dictated by a central circadian process in the brain that regulates when we sleep and timing and its relationship with the external environment, particularly the light and dark cycle. It gives significant implications for our normal physiology and our health. Virtually every system in the body functions optimally when the timing element is well regulated as well. So, for example, if we have the same meal in the middle of the daytime compared to the middle of the night, our metabolic response will be quite different. 
we would have overnight a tendency to have an impaired metabolic response, higher glucose levels, for example, and increased triglyceride levels, for example, all predicting that if you continued this pattern of eating at an inappropriate time, it would predict an increased risk of cardiometabolic disorders, appetite increase, obesity, and so on. And of course, we've heard a lot about the fact that we inadvertently disrupt our own circadian clocks with technology use sometimes. Absolutely. That is shift work and jet lag. In jet lag, we have this period of transient desynchronization where we move from one time zone to another, and it's a fairly short period of time that it takes us to adapt. In shift workers, the situation is different because people attempt to work and stay awake at times when the light and dark cues are often conflicting with the times that they're trying to remain awake. That creates a challenging situation where the internal biological clock doesn't adapt to the shift work roster and people then continue to try and work while their internal clock is out of sync. With the advent of artificial light, we have an opportunity for increased duration of wakefulness. We push sleep much later into the night and this has widespread implications as well for health, particularly for mental health and we see this particularly in adolescents. Yeah, of course. So this is the sort of thing that has really leaked into popular culture a lot. I think people are sort of aware of the idea of blue light, aware of the idea that sleep and wake is really important and there's sort of certain sleep hygiene tips that get circulated around that. What do you sort of see as being the big shifts that you've seen in the science over the last few years and, and where you think it's going? So there are different dimensions of sleep that really need to be the target of focused public health interventions. One of these is the duration of sleep. The second is the timing of sleep. Is sleep regular and consistent? And then finally, is the quality of sleep adequate and good? We also know that in terms of optimising the circadian clock, we know that there are times of the day when it is beneficial to have exposure to light and it, there are times of the day that it would be optimal to avoid light exposure, particularly high-intensity light and light in the shorter wavelengths, like the blue light that you were talking about. So in the evening, we would typically encourage dimmer lights and less exposure to short wavelength or blue light in order to try and optimise the quality of sleep that's about to come. The next major frontier for us is that we need to take all of these brilliant discoveries that have come from the neurosciences and the cellular physiology studies that have been done and apply these in clinical situations. We also know, and there is a strong basis to expect, that disruption of circadian processes may actually drive some types of depression. We'll be able to test this hypothesis, understand the subtypes of depression that are driven by or at least co-occur with circadian disruption and really improve outcomes for patients that are experiencing conditions such as depression. But these implications spread well beyond psychiatry and mental health to other areas such as metabolism or metabolic health, cardiovascular health, and so on with similar trials as well. One of the great discoveries that has come from Australia that has really propelled the field of circadian medicine is that 40 years ago, Associate Professor Jenny Redman, working at La Trobe University, discovered that the hormone melatonin can shift the timing of the circadian clock 
in mammals, and she actually did this work in an animal model. This discovery, which was published in the journal Science, went to all corners of the globe, transformed the field of circadian rhythms because we understood now that the mammalian circadian clock could be regulated by this hormone melatonin. This led to a worldwide explosion in the use of melatonin all over the globe. Some of the biggest breakthroughs in sleep science coming out of Melbourne. What a claim to fame. Shantha Rajaratnam is Professor of Sleep and Circadian Medicine at Monash University. And that's it for this super sleepy edition of The Health Report. It's time for me to hit the hay. Catch you next time. Hey, it's Anne Jones and we're back with a whole new season of What the Duck Moments from the Natural World. With the California condors, one of the reasons why they were in so much trouble is because of Johnny Cash. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yes. Find brand new episodes of What the Duck on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.